You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to this segment of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me today for a very special segment is DJ Lance Rock. Hi, Victor. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> I'm so glad you could make time for this. Yeah, absolutely. So we were talking about music and technology for expressing your music. And I, I know you use mostly analog synths. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, the group I had when I was out in Los Angeles was called the Raymakers, and we started in the, the late 90s. And so we went out of our way to try to get as much, you know, vintage equipment as we could you know um i got a juno 6 and i had a prophet 600 which i loved it was like the smaller version of the prophet 5 that thing was so great i, I still have it and i, I use um, a sequential multi-track so i've got that same family I, it's, it's sequential circuits so good so good um and so we just used different things and tried to you know merge them together through midi and stuff like that but I think computers are maybe good for like the recording technique. You know, that's where they they really shine. And I haven't really embraced that yet, unfortunately, which is something I, I might have to do at some point. But I just like I just like tinkering around with stuff. And um, you know, in in 2014, when I was at Moogfest, I took the engineering workshop and I I built a workstop, and that was the first year that they had had made those there. And you had to solder it yourself, and it's this great little homemade synthesizer. And uh, it, you know, it, there's just so many things now that I'm starting to have an evolution of thought because I, I definitely didn't really want to mess with a lot of Eurorack stuff. And I've heard so much of it, and some of them have, I mean, it sounds just like analog. Some of them sound so good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, but I, I, I want to, if I'm, if I'm going to jump into that, 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 that river, I, I want to make sure I'm going to do a project that I want to, not just as a hobby. I don't want to just get it and I'm going to tinker around. If I'm going to go there, I really want to do something with it. So, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the uh, the other things that I, I want to mention to you, just to put this in your ear, is there's a wealth of software for iPads, for iPhones, and for Mac that give you access to filters, give you access to the synthesizers, and you can use those devices as your tools. Um, you know, if you look at if you look at Animoog, for example, from or Animoog from from Moog. Um, that's a synthesizer with the touchscreen. I, I actually have the Filtertron. Filtertron. All right. So we're not going to do that right now because once it starts, you can't turn off. But it's, it, this thing has great sounds, and so I was glad it was able to transfer from you know since I, I I bought it, it was able to go from my one iPhone to the other, and you can just have a lot of fun with this. So what do you uh, do with Filtertron? You just volume. So they have different pads, have a sampler, you can record stuff into it, and you can uh, just, it, it's just, you know, like a great, um, you know, analog filter. Didn't realize my, I haven't charged my phone, I've been traveling all day, and I didn't realize it was on its, uh, 
last leg there at twelve percent. So but, it'll make it. It'll make it. I've got a charger back with my people there, but um, I, I know that's probably the way to go because there's so many things now that. It, but it's weird too because I think a lot of people can use the software. It it's all comes down to the person. Some people can use them very creatively and artistically, and some people are just, oh, it's a fun toy, you know, it's just whatever. And, and that's fine too. And if that gets people interested and excited in, you know, analog synthesis, modular synthesis, just any, any sort of, you know, musical expression, that's fine by me. I just, not ready to combine everything yet. You know, I like the, the tactile being able to either patch something in, or play on a keyboard, or turn a knob. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like the tactile experience of it. You know, I, I, I don't know if you went to a lot of shows like in the late 90s, early 2000s, where everyone just had a laptop, mm-hmm. pushed a button. Yeah, that. I feel like these things go full circle. That, that there's, you know, we had analog synthesis. Then we got MIDI and people started connecting controllers like my old sequential yep. to you know the the first Macs the the old 1984-85 Macintoshes and using Finale and software like that to to figure out how to track and create um, arrangements and orchestrations and and you know signal things coming on sequence sequence them and now we we reached that pace, pace in the 90s where everything was laptop driven like you say you just yeah. got up and touched a button and that was the performance. Which is, is I, I get it, it feels soulless, right? Well, I don't know, well, here's the thing about it. I wouldn't have a problem with it if they didn't treat it like the same model of a, a concert where you're actually standing looking. Mm-hmm. Why, why is everybody facing somebody in the dark pushing a button on a laptop? You know, that's, that's when raves and the underground parties came along. It was like the DJ or the, the, the producer kind of controlled the environment, but people were still dancing, doing their own thing. And once it went into the clubs again, people are just focused again like it's like, you know, Jimi Hendrix up there. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a different thing. So I, if there was some way to make it more democratic again where it's like, okay, we're going to, I'm going to be up here, you know, I'm going to be adjusting some knobs and I'm going to be twiddling this and I'm going to patch this and I'm just going to push this button, maybe filter it a little bit but you guys can enjoy the music and dance and not pay attention to me, then that's fine. But a lot of yeah. times it's back to paying attention to the artist. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting because we had, you know, we used the keyboard as the controller and then that was very much performance, right? right? And then from there we went to the laptop, as you said, and after that, we got something like the Novation Launchpad, which is this array of buttons that controls patches and loops yep. in Ableton or, or Fruity Loops, as it used to be called. Um, <laughs> I remember that. Before the cereal company got angry at them. And you know, I feel like it's coming full circle again, where we now we've, we're going back to these, these analog synths, modular synths, that work with filters and patches on the laptop to control that, some of the stuff that UAD is doing with, the, with Apollo 8. Absolutely, but I think part of the problem was, I think it's just the nature of most companies. They want to just uh, keep making money. They want you to keep buying new products. So there's this kind of forced obsolescence in there. So there was a time where analog was pushed aside, actually. It's like, you know, you need to get this stuff. And even when you had digital, it's like, okay, well, you can connect this and this and this. But now just do everything with apps and downloads, and you can have it on your computer. You can control everything. Mm-hmm. And now... I think there's just a lot of people who 
feel like they're missing something or they didn't have a chance to experience that. And now the companies are coming back and offering this stuff because they can make money off of it. Mm -hmm. But it's also now you can't force people. people. Now we're getting the opportunity to be able to try to find out what you like and you can do it. You're not forced to just say, I have to accept this, mm -hmm. you know, but that's, that's when, when analog went away the first time, I think that's what happened. They were definitely trying to force it out of the market. Like but, when, when the record companies tried to force vinyl out yeah. for CDs and it took a while, but like vinyl, vinyl is, you know, back in full force. It is. The other thing that happened that caused the digital push was, was that, you know, we had synthesis, but the original intention was to recreate instrument tones, right? The whole idea of general MIDI was to, and I, I can see you, I'm just telling listeners, you're shaking your head at me as I say it, but... Uh, I never, I never liked that. They don't, I, I don't want to interrupt you, so... But, but, I, but I you know, liked... rolling sound canvas and sound brush, going back to, uh, I want to say 1993, the whole point was that they had found a way to do 32-bit uh, emulation or sampling so that you could get a perfectly recreated grand piano and a perfectly recreated violin sound with General MIDI. And that was, that was the big thing that year, was being the other instrument. And what got lost along the way was engineers were pursuing making the perfect recreated instrument, and they forgot that the cool thing was enjoying these, these square waves and vocoders and different sounds that we'd never had before. That's, that's all I have cared about. And that's why Moog's been really great. They didn't really go down that road like everybody else, you know? And um, I, I get it. I, I get it. I get, I, I, you know, there's just many different schools. I'm certainly, you know, respect everyone's taste and opinion, but I've, I've always been kind of more from that school of, you know, I don't want to say, you know, the Dusseldorf school or anything, like, but just, <laughs> it's just the, the, the German electronic music that was very experimental, even though it had a very European kind of classical sense to it. It was still, you came up with these really, like, unique sounds that you hadn't heard before. And it wasn't, they weren't trying to emulate a violin or, you know, piano chords or brass or anything like that. They were just doing their own thing. Video, video killed the radio my star. My friend's mom made it, my friend and I watched that video and we were like, what's going on with this music? Well, you know, the, the, you know when he mentions the Germanic school, it's things like Kraftwerk or, or some of these others. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, Cluster or, you know, a, a, a lot of them. I don't want to just start naming it. The laundry list. There's just tons of things. You know, early Tangerine Dream, Conrad Schnitzler. You know, there's just all these different people that are out there. And you know, I, I don't know if you know that Jean-Michel Jarre is doing like, like a small little U.S. tour, and it's the first time he's ever toured America ever. Like he played one show in in Houston when they were. Um, gonna do this thing with the Challenger, you know, and, and they were gonna record something live in space, but then the Challenger, Challenger exploded, and so then he ended up doing this big concert, and that was the only time he ever played America. So he's doing this this short little truncated, like, eight-city tour or something like that, but he doesn't need America, and there's nothing against that. He's, <laughs> he's huge, and, and people really respond to his music, but he does it on his own terms, you know? He wasn't really trying to do anything else, so I, I you know, I'm going to go see him. I'm excited to see him. But I appreciate that, you know, there's people out there that are like, this is what I want to do. And if you appreciate it, come along for the ride. And there's a lot of people that, that will come along for the ride instead of, we did this and now we've got to, you know, you know I love the Human League, you know. But, you know, after, after you know, they hit it big with Dare, then all of a sudden they come back with something like Human, which it's not necessarily a bad song, but it's a Human League song, you know. That's like a Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis song. 
And it's a good one, but you know, I can see Janet Jackson or Alexander O'Neill singing that. Not the Human League, but that was a number one hit for them. A number one hit for them, you know? Yeah. And so it's, it's, you know, you can't really pick all that stuff. But going back to what you said, I, I love the Buggles. I love the Buggles. And Trevor Horn ended up being, you know, after that, like, just a great producer and did so much stuff from the 80s from, you know, ABC, Lexicon Love, to Frankie Goes to Hollywood, to Grace Jones, Slave to the Rhythm, to like all of this just amazing stuff. And, you know, I, I like both Buckles albums, actually. They're, they're both fairly cool. That's the kind of stuff I like, you know. New music by, you know, the group of Tony Mansfield, and he was in a producer, Naked Eyes, and all this other stuff. Like, well, people are doing really interesting stuff. They were just like, we want to make this weird sounding music. We've got these sounds here, you know. And so, like, when the early Moog records came out, they were really cool, but then it quickly became, like, a novelty. And so they, they marketed them that way, even though there's some really great compositions and sounds that, you know, still sound, you know, unique to this day, you know. Now, you've mentioned four stops of lessons, and, and so I want to give you a little time to talk about this. Um, you know, this is something that we talk about on, on this podcast pretty regularly, is what happens when the tools don't keep up to date? What happens when the tools uh, aren't updated by the company that makes them? You know, that's that's one of the fears that people have talked about for a while in terms of Apple not updating the Mac Pro, which is a, a, a you know a Mac that gets used as a DAW a lot, right? When when your computer is out of date, what's going to happen is a, is a tough question. Um, you you had a personal experience where you've got your your MacBook Pro is the one from 2013 with the CD drive. Right. You've got the um, you've got the uh, the you had an iPhone 4s. Well, the, with the MacBook Pro, it's just you know I I, um, I, I took it in. They're like uh, your your disk drive starting to fail. I was like, oh, can I get another one? Like, oh, we don't we don't put those in there anymore. What? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's that's four years ago. I'm looking at my watch. It's four years ago. Like, so, what? Yeah. That that's that should be a feature always. But you know, tech, I mean, it's just like you know, you don't modify the piano. I guess you can, but you know, you know, there's certain things people want those features. So you should at least offer. It. And I know they offer one that you can plug in, but it's still not the same as mm -hmm. just having it there. And it's just frustrating that they're kind of forcing you to make other choices. Is that like? But this is what I want. Right. And, and with the Mac, there are at least options. You know, it's, it's some, not something they'd ever offer to you, but you can, with specifically the model you have, it was very popular because people took out the CD drive and put in another hard drive. Right. And so you could have double the storage. You could have a drive dedicated to your, your music work and then a drive with all your applications on it and keep the two separate. Um, you know, and if your drive is failing, as they say, then that would be a good reason to, like, back it all up to Time Machine yep. and then take the original hard drive out and replace it. And, and restore it from Time Machine so that you can keep using that machine. You, you shouldn't have to let go of that machine just because it's right. no longer on the supported list. Right. And that's what it's feeling like. And I, But I think I'm, I will be able to take your advice and do that. But with uh, the phone, I, I don't know what happened. I had a 4S and uh, had that thing since 2012 and uh, fought tooth and nail to keep that. And the phone kept trying to make me put in the new operating system yes and when i didn't do it all of a sudden you couldn't use uber you couldn't you but that's probably a godsend it but um <laughs> there was just certain applications that wouldn't work it's like you can't get the new update because you don't have the new operating system 
But then I spoke to somebody, and they're like, well, if you use a new operating system, it's going to eat up all of your memory, and it's going to just drain your battery like that if you do it. So I didn't do it for like two and a half years, and the phone kept working great, but then there were little things that started happening, and I just had to give up on apps. Mm -hmm. And that was fine until it just got to the point where it just couldn't do it anymore, and I got a success. And I do like certain things about it a lot more. Like it's a, the, the, the camera on there is amazing. There's a lot of things that are just like, it's just really good. The, the speakers on there are actually really good. But I had everything backed up on the time machine. But then I had taken a bunch of pictures and video on this phone. And I wanted to uh, just make sure they were uploaded to the iCloud before I came out to Moogfest. And I plugged it in and I have no idea what happened. It just was kind of like... And it didn't do that, but it just, it was just pinwheeled for like five hours until I finally just got exasperated. Like I turned it off and tried to start it again. Nothing happened. And then I finally had to take it to the Apple store and they said they couldn't restore it. And I lost like, you know, all the, all the, the, the photos, video, all the notes and reminders, all the text messages, any sort of data that was there from like, December 2014 and before I had and everything else was gone. Hmm. So do you still have the 4S? I still do have the 4S. Okay. So here's here's my recommendation to you to solve this is you know Apple, Apple has for years pushed people to um, and, and we'll wrap this up shortly because I know you're on a timeline here. Sorry. But uh, Apple's for years encouraged people to use iCloud as their backup because it, it the phone will back up to the cloud, and if the phone gets you know, stepped on, dropped in water, whatever, it goes right. away, you can pick up another one and download the backup restore from iCloud. In theory, this works great. Not always in practice, as you found. Exactly. So here's what you do. You, you have your MacBook Pro. I do. Connect the 4S to your MacBook Pro, and in iTunes, and I'm sorry to have to recommend iTunes, but you have to use iTunes no, because iTunes. that's how they tell you to do it. Yeah. Um, you can select that instead of backing up to iCloud, you're going to back up to your Mac directly. And there's another checkbox. There's a check. This is very important. There's a checkbox that says encrypt backup, and you want to check that and set a password. And the reason is that if you don't encrypt your backup, there are things that they will not back up for you because they want to protect your privacy. So encrypt your backup, do it to your machine directly. And then as soon as you've done that, go to your 6S and restore from the backup on that Mac, and then everything, absolutely everything, will come over. Now, your notes that you're creating on this that are stored in iCloud will come back because they're in iCloud, and you'll sign into iCloud. Your photos that you're using on here, turn on iCloud photo library so that they go up to the cloud so that they'll come back when you do this restore. Okay. But the ones that are on the 4S, because the ones... The ones that are on the 4S will go to the computer, and then from the computer to your 6S. Perfect. I know it sounds like a lot of, of you know patch cords plugging in no, this one, I, unplugging I this one, it, actually. but that's sense. the way to do it. Instead of relying on going to Apple servers to come back down from Apple servers, you have your Mac right there. It's perfect. Go ahead and use it to backup with the encrypted backup and then restore to the new phone. Well, thank make you sure for before you do that, make sure that you're using iCloud photo library so that your photos go up and come back and make sure that your notes are using iCloud for notes and then you'll be set. Great. Yeah, at some point you'll be asked whether or not you want to trust this laptop mm. when you connect the two, and the answer is yes. I don't know if I trust Apple, but I trust you, Victor, so I'll, I'll try that to 
Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you, DJ Lance Rock. I really appreciate you being here. It was a pleasure, and uh, hopefully uh, this will work out, and one day I'll be able to say Apple is awesome! <laughs> so welcome to this segment of the Apple Insider Podcast. Joining me is Dave Hodder of Focusrite Innovation. Hello. Nice to see you. Welcome. So F Focusrite is, makes tools for musicians. Is that right? We certainly do. And, and the same as Novation, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And what, what products might our listeners know? Well, I'm sure you would have, if you're interested in electronic music at all, you've probably seen the launch pad, a grid of uh, 64 buttons that light up and make lots of fun sound. And if you record or if you know anyone who records, chances are you might have seen a scarlet little red box that you plug into your computer. Great for recording guitars, vocals, that kind of thing. And what, what, is the, uh, what, what is the thing that makes these things unique? What is the, the reason that I should go out and get a, a Scarlet, for example? Well, at, at the office, we talk about making music easy to make. It's kind of our purpose. And although that sounds quite simple, there's a, there's a lot of depth there. And we're not talking about trying to make it just trivial to create music, like just press a button and music comes out. We're talking about making it easier to be a musician, making it easier to sound good, and making it easier to focus on the music rather than worrying about technology. So that's, uh, that's the difference, I think, is that we apply a lot of uh, very careful design thinking to, to everything that we do. We don't always get it right, but it's a, it's a mantra that we have to try and make it easier to use. So as, as well as sounding great, which is obviously crucial for any, uh, for any musical product, uh, we also focus on making it easier to use so that you can focus on the music rather than the technology. Thank you. So when, when, when uh, we use a, a launch pad, for example, what, what does that connect to? Because it's not a thing that stands on its own and makes music with right. lights. What, right. what, what works with that? So well, it's a surprising number of things that work with Launchpad, but probably nine times out of ten, it's Ableton Live. It's a piece of software for pretty much any kind of electronic and non-electronic music composition. The desktop application runs on a Mac or, a, or on a Windows computer. Mm -hmm. And so would you say that nine times out of ten people are using a launch pad with a Mac probably? Um, I'd probably run the numbers. It's probably not as much as nine times out of ten. Yeah. Probably, it's probably around 50-50. Is it? I think, yeah. Okay. Um, what, are, what are some musicians that we might have heard of that are using a launch pad? I think um, there's through no kind of uh, no kind of design of our own. It kind of spawned a bit of a new sound with um, with Madion. If, if you haven't heard of Madion, check him out on YouTube. Uh, he created a video when I think he was about 16, 17. He created a video of uh, a mashup of pop tracks. It's called Pop Culture, and he created that with with Ableton and a launch pad and performed it. The YouTube video went viral. And since then, he's worked with lots of major musicians, and he's produced his own albums. And he's really, he's really a kind of archetype of, of Launchpad and, and how it's changed music in some way. So yeah, check it out; it's very impressive. Very cool. Hey, hey, Emery, stop setting things down on the table. Every time you do, the whole thing booms. Oh, it could be me as well. No, no, it's <laughs> it's her dropping the phone on it. Okay, I can hear them a little bit, but 
well, what are we going to do? Play jazz. Yeah. <laughs> so Launchpad isn't just a piece of hardware, though. Uh, it's it's also an application. It is, yeah. So, so tell tell me more about what it runs on and what people do with it. Yeah. So the uh, the Launchpad app came from our kind of realizing that creating music with Ableton is uh, is a great way to do pretty much anything you want to do. It's incredibly powerful and flexible. But it's not necessarily right for some of the people who saw those videos and thought, wow, amazing, I want to create some music with this thing. I know nothing about music. I just want to try and do that. And so that was kind of the inspiration for creating an app that would bring a massively simplified version of the Launchpad experience to, uh, to people who otherwise it would be kind of inaccessible to. So that was why we were inspired to go first to the iPad and then to the iPhone to create that app to make it just easier to to actually access the music making tools that uh, previously you'd need to buy a hardware product and a desktop computer and a piece of software to, to do. And the iPad version came first? It did, yeah. We came to the iPad first and then uh, and then moved to the iPhone after, a, it was probably a, over a year until it came to the iPhone because the differences in user interface design are actually quite stark between the large screen of the iPad and the, the much smaller area available on the iPhone. I remember a product called Pocket Loops. <laughs> ah, yes. yes. <laughs> you knew I was going to bring it up. Um, yeah, back in the day. <laughs> yeah, and it was a it was a 24-key black and white keyboard with a dock, 30-pin mm. dock for an iPod Touch or an iPhone back in yeah. the time. Was it, which, it was, was it the Gen 1 or the Gen 2 iPhone? I think it was... It, it, yeah. was, it was for... Oh, it was the, a bit further on than that, wasn't it? it no, it was, it was the 3G, which was the Gen 2 yeah. iPhone, yeah. the 3GS, and the iPod 2nd and 3rd Gen. That's right. iPod yeah, Touch. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't think that there was ever a cradle made for it to support the, the 4 series. I don't think it worked with an iPhone 4 or 4S at yeah. the time. But it was, it was that launch pad experience where you had a grid of, of squares. Mm-hmm. Four uh, by four grid, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And you would go ahead and, and record samples using the 24 key keyboard mm-hmm. into those and then tap on them to start or stop them or yep. create patterns with them. Yeah. And one of the things about that product was that you could not play out of tune. Mm. It was it was one of the, the things that seemed like it was a design requirement was you could not play out of tune so that anything you played would sound in tune with itself. Yeah. I don't remember that, I must confess. I that don't was, remember us. That was the unique that selling came proposition. After, yeah. Because uh, I coded the first prototype and there was certainly nothing that clever in that. <laughs> it, 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 it came along. It uh, came, I forget that. Yeah. Oh, 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 a, that was part of it. To, to dust it off and have a play again. Yeah. <laughs> well, you actually have access to one of those. I, I couldn't yeah. get one if I saved, tried to save my life. Yeah, we've got, well, we've got one somewhere in the office. <laughs> <laughs> along with a, a, a vintage iPod Touch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we do. I can still picture it. <laughs> yeah. And the... Um, so it struck me as interesting because that small screen experience was was very much a, a Launchpad kind of experience. It was, yeah. Well, it came before Launchpad, and there was definitely some uh, some inspiration. Obviously, it was the same team who uh, who went on to create uh, to create and build on on that through Novation to, that created the uh, some of the other iOS apps that we that we built. What are the other iOS apps? So currently, there is uh, well, in fact, before even Launchpad, and I think before Pocket Loops, there was the Launch Key app. Um, which uh, was created for our keyboard products, um, but but now the uh, we actually created a whole new team, uh, well separated the, the app development team and moved them to London. So they're set up now in uh, in Tile Yard Studios in London, and they are creating our new iOS apps. So Launchpad and Blocks Wave are our two 
iOS apps at the moment. Launchpad is about performing really and about kind of dynamically creating an arrangement of a piece of music. Whereas Blocks Wave is more about that initial composition phase of getting some loops that really work well together, maybe recording something in as well and building on that. So it's it's sort of the, uh, it's kind of like a notepad to kick down your ideas and, and put them together and yeah, assemble them a bit. Absolutely. We, um, so obviously being, uh, being focused right, we think a lot about recording. And one of the things that really bothered us was the kind of the tyranny of the record light and the metronome <laughs> and the, the ticking metronome just saying, come on, feed me, give me music. It's like the tyranny of the blank sheet of paper, right? Right. So when we, uh, when we thought about that, one of the things we concluded was that it doesn't have to start that way. It could start for you just looking for something that inspires you. So scrolling through some beats or some bass lines or whatever it is till you've got something that inspires you to then pick up your guitar or sing or whatever instrument you might want to record on top of that. And we've actually found that people quite like just to create with those loops that are available and not everybody needs to record anything at all. They're still willing to start creating by scrolling through uh, serendipitously searching for loops that work together and building something up from that process rather than just facing this blank sheet of paper that's quite intimidating and not necessarily the most creatively inspiring. Very, very cool. Um, I'm going to have to try out that. I haven't tried that one out yet. I've, oh, it's good fun. I've used Launchpad. I've used, I've used Pocket Loops, I have to confess. But The, uh, the difference with, with Wave and Launchpad is with, with Wave, you... Um, once you've made it, particularly recorded something, but or if you're just using one of the loops, is you have much more creative control over what you've recorded. So you can zoom in and create loop points and um, and recycle bits of the wave that you've recorded in a very hands-on way. You can get you, know, you can get your voice sounding like a granular synthesizer if you uh, if you want to. You can make some quite find some quite unexpected things that work really well together. And again, that that idea of always staying in key. You know, whenever you're using. Um, using sound packs or, or loops in wave they're all in time and in key and you can change the key change the time and it'll all stay sounding good together that feels very familiar <laughs> yes cool um what what would you say to someone who has yet to experience uh any of these apps or or any of the hardware what, what should they how should they approach it how should they find which one fits them um, oh, that's, a, that's a very open and kind of tough question, isn't it? I think um, it kind of depends on what you want to achieve, really. If you, um, if you already play an instrument, then, uh, then thinking about how to record and build on what you can do with your instrument is the kind of thing that Wave can help you with. Uh, if you don't play an instrument, and particularly if you're um, interested in a particular style of music or there's a particular particular genre that appeals to you there's pretty much pretty much certain there'll be a uh, a launchpad pack in that genre so if you get the launchpad app and buy one of those packs you can start to see how the different building blocks of that type of music fit together and play around with them it's quite an easy path into feeling like you genuinely can create something new um the uh until recently the launchpad for iphone app didn't give you so many creative options as the iPad app, but now you can actually import your own sounds into that as well. There's kind of there's a lot more creative possibility there, but you don't have to go that far. You can just start with uh, with a kind of easier experience of the app as it comes. Cool. 
you know, one of the things that I've sort of wanted and, and hadn't put together. So I, I, back in the day, I used to use a looping pedal. Um, mm. I had a boomerang, which was one of the early looping pedals. Yeah. Uh, and, and Roland made a bunch with the, uh, their RC series, right? The RC thirties or RC sixties. And I kind of wanted the idea of launch pad with sort of a mini Ableton built into it. <laughs> right. So that I could import patches or play instruments into the iPad or iPhone and then mm. use, use Launchpad to trigger those mm. kind of things. Um, so have you played with Loopy? Uh, you know, I have used Loopy HD. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's sort of doing it for me, but it's not that, that grid of squares kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It would be fun to mix the two up. I agree with you. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder if there's some way, because the people behind Loopy HD are also the people behind Audiobus. They are, yeah, yeah. You know, if there was some way that you could, uh, yes, I'm asking for feature requests right now. Uh, you know, that, that kind of inter-app audio sharing and, and collaboration mm. strikes me as being something really cool. Definitely. Well, it's kind of a different angle there, but um, fitting Ableton Link support into the, uh, into the Launchpad app has been quite interesting because now you can just play Launchpad along with, with other people in a session uh, who might be using other Link-compatible apps or using Ableton itself. So you've got this nice uh, extension of really... Um, previously it was really fiddly to set up clocking so that everybody's in time and in sync mm. and the only way you could do it would be to configure it so that somebody's in charge and uh and they're starting and stopping the transport and saying what speed you're playing at and you have to follow their lead whereas with link it's much more freeform it's much more like a jam session uh, that you might have with uh, acoustic instruments or something like that so how does how does that work set it up for me in sort of my in your, your mind's eye there's there's People with uh, Link or, or people with Launchpad on iPads, yep. and someone with a computer with Ableton. Yep. And multiple people can control collaboratively. Is is that what's going on? Yeah. So uh, currently, it's just the um, it's just the tempo and the downbeat of the music that are transmitted and the time signature. Sorry, uh, over Ableton Link. So if somebody starts a, a, a drum beat going on one iPad, if you want to drop in from another iPad or from Ableton. A, uh, an arpeggiated synth line or something like that that will come in it'll be in time and in sync perfectly and you can just freely exchange ideas in, in the way that you would jam with, uh, with with traditional instruments so you can have you know four or five people sitting around on a sofa tapping away on iPads creating music together oh yeah yeah it's good fun <laughs> <laughs> wow well Gosh, thank you very much for, for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, what what I, I should ask, what are the things that you're showing here at Moogfest? Ah, so we brought, um, we brought quite a few of our synth family, Innovation Synth family with us, uh, particularly our two new products we just released. Uh, the Peak, which is a hybrid synthesizer. It's got some incredibly interesting new digital oscillators. And in the synth world, there's this kind of digital analog thing. Um, so Peak's kind of got the best both worlds, really. It's got these... New, new technology digital oscillators which run super high frequency much higher than, uh, than your 44.1 kilohertz type sample rate that you're used to and they feed into, uh, into some, analog, uh, some analog effects and filters that just sound really great so it's an interesting hybrid of analog and digital technology um, for, a, for a real synth head uh, and it's, it can make a massive variety of different sounds as a, as a result um, and we've also brought along our uh, uh, circuit mono station product which is a self-contained sequencer and analog synthesizer 
It's a bit like if a circuit and a base station got together, only it's much weirder than that. It's a totally unique thing. And the way that you play it, I, I can't explain this verbally or even by waving my hands. It's just a unique little thing that you can have a lot of fun with. So, yeah. So it's them and some of their, uh, some of their other buddies as well are here. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Dave Potter from uh, Focus Right Innovation. This episode is brought to you by Jamf Now. When you first start your business, it's pretty easy to keep track of your own computer and phone. But as you grow and start to buy more tech for your employees, it gets harder to keep track of everyone's Macs, iPhones, and iPads. Thankfully, Jamf Now lets you manage your Apple devices from anywhere. Maybe you need to secure the iPad that your sales rep lost while you're in different locations? Well, Jamf Now makes that, and a lot more, much easier. Configure settings, protect sensitive information, even lock or wipe a device from anywhere. Jamf Now secures your stuff so you can focus on your business instead. No IT expertise needed. And as a special offer to our listeners, you can start securing your business today by setting up your first three devices for free. Add more for just two bucks a month per device. Go to jamf.com slash Apple Insider to create a free account and set up your three free devices today. That's jamf.com slash Apple Insider. Welcome back to this segment of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm, I'm Victor, and I'm with Talakael Esparza. Hello. So I'm, I'm really glad and you're here to able to join me. Very glad to be here, too. So you, you founded a company called Sensory Percussion. Actually, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, let me try that again. You founded a company called Sunhouse, and you make a product called Sensory Percussion. Yeah. So Sensory Percussion is our flagship product. We actually did, we used to be called Sensory Percussion, uh, and we realized that we had bigger goals in mind. So we, we changed it to Sunhouse, which kind of encapsulates a concept for us. Um, and our flagship product is Sensory Percussion, which is uh, really a, a new approach to electronic drumming that really looks at the art form as it is. And teaches computers to understand drumming from the drummer's perspective and allows drummers to use their art form to interface with electronic instruments and sounds and synths and lighting and anything you want really, really with the digital world. So let me ask, when you say from the drummer's perspective, uh, what, what does that mean? And, and, and what, was, what, what existed before you made sensory percussion that wasn't doing the job? Sure, so maybe I could tell you a bit about my background as a drummer. Um, I I studied jazz drums for a very long time. Um, that's why I moved to New York, where, which is where we're based. Um, and jazz drums, it's really, in my opinion, it's kind of the pinnacle of the art form of the drum set as, as an instrument. Um, you really focus on <clears throat> drawing out all the different sounds that a drum can possibly make in order to kind of string together a, a new musical language, very abstract, purely abstract kind of musical language of sound, pure sound. Um, and you know, these, if you listen to the, if you listen and watch a jazz drummer play, they're playing the drums in all kinds of ways. They're hitting the stick, they're playing out to the edge of the drum. <clears throat> they're really kind of exploring the drums as a timbral complex acoustic object, right? <clears throat> so coming from that perspective and then wanting to use electronic drums, um, it's a very, diff it's a very bizarre experience because you get an electronic drum, which is, you know, the, the, any electronic instrument that's been out there for the last 30 years is kind of of the same kind, where you have a pad or you have something that looks like a drum and you hit it and it gives you one sound, more or less. So you go from this on-off kind of button-like 
hitting to the complex sound of an acoustic object, and there's just no really no real comparison. So I wanted electronic instruments to respond like acoustic instruments, to be able to control them with the same level of nuance and depth that an acoustic snare drum, for instance, would respond with. So how, how are you accomplishing that? So <clears throat> our technology is <clears throat> it's a sensor that attaches to any drum. It works on acoustic drums. It works on drums with mesh heads, which are silent, um, and software that is... Um, power, powerful enough to listen to the way in which you're playing the drum and understand how you're interacting with it. So it's, the sensor really picks up the audio of the drum. And the software analyzes the timbral qualities of each drum hit. So when I hit the center of the drum, it'll sound, it'll have a different sonic quality than if I hit the edge of the drum, or if I hit the drum in a different way, if I put my hand on the drum and then hit it. All of those different actions create a different sound in the real world. Our software analyzes that and can figure out how you're interacting with, with the drum purely through audio. So with that, we're able to, to take your drumming in real time and turn it into a symbolic language that allows you to use all of that interaction to control whatever you want. And that could be sample playback, it could be looping, it could be a reverb effect, it could be lighting controls, you could be controlling complex visual synthesis, it could be whatever you want at that point. So you're, you're taking an analog signal mm -hmm. off of the, the drum hit yeah. and turning it into uh, almost a MIDI signal? It's like MIDI, but much higher dimensional. So, you know, MIDI is kind of not really up to par for this. Well, it was invented in the 80s and it hasn't changed a whole lot it since. It was. <laughs> and, um, you know, to the point, it was invented for keyboards and it works. And so it's coming from that paradigm of Western note scales. It doesn't really make sense for me to say, okay, the center, center of the drum is C and the edge of the drum is C sharp. Because those don't those notes don't have any relationship to the actual drum itself. It's an artificial it's kind of, construct, right? Exactly. So we've built a native kind of data type that represents the complexity of the drum itself, its acoustic qualities, <clears throat> and we've we have an uh, our software has a has an interface to, that allows you to very easily map that data type to control anything you want. So let's say I wanted to map 10 different sounds to my drum. You just drag and drop them in the software and suddenly you can control 10 different individual sounds on a single drum. Or let's say I wanted to blend smoothly between those sounds and move through them as though I'm kind of moving through a room. You can do that very easily through the software. You can take, I wanna say center of the drum to the edge of the drum, I want this to control a reverb send and you can very easily map that out. So you can take the kind of <clears throat> dimensional complexity of an acoustic object and map those dimensions individually to control whatever you want in a very kind of easy drag and drop scalable way that allows that really allows ultimate creative freedom for using electronics within the art form of drumming. It's very and when I say from the drummer's perspective and uh, you know when I say from the drummer's perspective I mean that it speaks the language of drumming. When I say from the drummer's perspective I really mean that in that it speaks from the drummer's perspective of sitting behind the drums understanding the technique and the kind of the art form as a craft and really maps that art form to the world of electronic music production. We want to blend and marry the two worlds of acoustic drumming and music production. How long have you been doing this? Well, the company's been around for three years. Um, so uh, the company's been around for three years, um, but I did a bit of research into this world before that um, in my, my grad school days at NYU. Um, and I studied uh, MIR, which is Music Information Retrieval. And so with my advisor, Juan Bayo, we were looking at machine learning as applied to audio. So we were really looking to use machine learning to teach computers to be able to listen like we do. 
and that's really the kind of the foundation of our technology. Um, at least um, it gave me the tool set that I needed to really go forward with this vision. Um, so, but from start to finish, you know, it took a full year of development um, before we had a working, fully working prototype, and then another year of, of kind of manufacturing and DFM. And then we shipped in July of 2016, and we've just been shipping worldwide since then. Congratulations. Thanks. So, and I, I don't say that lightly, I know how hard it is to ship. Yeah, and we were, we were a successful Kickstarter that, you know, said we would ship and we did and it was it was our, all one of, of our few. people are happy <laughs> yeah that's that's so good to hear so you, you talk about the software and and i you know this is apple insider so i have to ask uh is, is it macintosh compatible it absolutely is um i develop on a mac um it's windows compatible as well um you know most musicians use Macs, so it's uh kind of a very nice environment to work in um you know all the hardware works together <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, it's Mac compatible. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, um, it's, uh, you know, runs on, let's see, <clears throat> it's a uh, Mac compatible runs on most laptops. The, you know, CPU in, um, requirements aren't anything beyond what you would expect of like a DAW. Um, so, you know, the more you want to do, the faster your computer should be, but you know, we have people using MacBook Airs and stuff like that. Cool. And how many customers do you think you have? Um, I th I'd have to ask my brother, who's more of the mm -hmm. <laughs> business end. Uh, we're a family company, so me and my brother and my sister. So we have a user base of about 300 users, and I'd have to ask my brother for that exact number because um, he handles the operations. We're actually a family company. Uh, my brother runs operations and the business side. My sister does artist endorsements and um, kind of, you know, business opportunities and event planning and stuff like that. Um, we're still very, very small. Um, we have, uh, you know, a sound designer and um, <clears throat> two software engineers and a machine learning researcher. But beyond that, it's, you know, it's very bootstrapped. Um, and, but, you know, our users are very, very excited and very passionate and, uh, um, and we're growing. So we also have a very great, I'm very proud of our artist roster. The, the artists who are using our software is probably my proudest achievement Tell which me. is uh you know we ha we've i think more so than any i i would say more successfully than any other electronic drum product out there we've been able to um get jazz musicians interested in using this on stage so we have people like marcus gilmore using it with <clears throat> um, taylor mcfarren and chick Corea. we have um trevor lawrence jr using it on stage with herbie hancock uh we have kendrick scott who's out there playing solo shows with it, and also using it with his quartet. Um, but we also have pop backs using it. We have, um, you know, indie rock drummers using it. Ian Chang is one of one of uh, my old friends and one of my favorite users. Um, he has he started he's launched a solo career um, using our product and also uses it in his various bands. Um, and and there's a lot more. Uh, it's very exciting to see see how they're using it in different ways than me. Um, currently at Moogfest is uh, Greg Fox amazing drummer he's coming out with an album in the fall which is composed on acoustic drums using our our system and it's incredibly beautiful um, so i'm very excited about the, the music that's starting to come out brilliant and just just because i'm curious i mean the, the person who wants to use your system they have to buy the uh the the sending units the sensors <clears throat> they have to get an interface for that to connect to the computer yeah and then they have your software at the computer. Is there anything else that's required? 
yeah, so that's right. Um, it, the sensors are like phantom-powered microphones, so they require a third-party interface um, and either Mac or PC to run the software. Um, and that's all that's required. You know, if you want a big sound system, that would be up to you. But that, that hasn't been too much of a deterrent for certainly for our users, but for a lot of drummers, um, a lot of people have interfaces or, or want interfaces or need interfaces. They're pretty standard. Um, they're pretty inexpensive and almost everybody has a computer. So there, um, you know, there are certainly people who would respond um, to it, a fully embedded version, which we would love to build. And we actually are looking at working on, um, but yeah, in its current state, it's a, uh, it's um, mostly software and we update the software about once a month. We, you know, I have a, million a really deep feature list that were yeah but the the software really is the workhorse and uh since it's software we can update it and um you know i have a, a we have a really deep feature list that we're working through a lot we update the software about once a month um and uh you know a lot of exciting things that we're working on adding to it and uh, looking at ways of, of expanding the concept and and its capabilities very cool uh, well i know that a lot of our listeners uh one of the things we've been talking about recently has been the the Mac professional mm -hmm. and you know the idea that that sometimes users feel abandoned by Apple because Apple took a while to announce whether or not they were going to update the Mac Pro for example or the, you know the concept of the MacBook Pro was a while in coming and it came out with 16 gig of RAM when professionals wanted 32 and mm -hmm. things like that so you know I I uh, I've been interested in finding and seeking out different kinds of professionals that use the Mac and and uh, hearing that you develop on it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not the dark days of 10 or 15 years ago when we thought Apple was dying, but it's, it's still reassuring to hear that, that it's the first choice for some professions and the first choice for some users. Yeah. I mean, you know, to be perfectly honest, I was a little disheartened with the newest iteration of the MacBook. I, I have the, you know, the unibody previous version and, and um, <clears throat> I'm reluctant to upgrade um, because of the lack of IO on the, on the thing. Um, but I mean, you know, I switched to Macs probably somewhere around 2004 or five, and I haven't really looked back. It's just such an easier environment to work in, just human computer interaction wise. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've only recently been a software developer. I started programming and I took my first C class in 2011. Um, so I learned on the Mac. It's kind of just what I was comfortable with. Um, but, you know, it has a lot of benefits um, just in, you know, but it, it's a it's a very good environment to to work in and learn in. It's it's uh, standard and predictable as an environment, especially for music. Um, you know, you don't have to deal with strange drivers and strange pieces of hardware that don't function with your software and you know, things that you might have to deal with on a PC, for instance. Um, uh, you know, if you're, if you're like me and you just kind of want things to work and focus on getting concepts down and, you know, moving forward, uh, it's kind of, you know, you, you can't go wrong. And, and with regard to the, uh, the, the change in the interfaces, right, the everything going to USB Type-C, I, I think right now we're in that early transition period my, my perspective on this is that give it two years and all of the devices you care about will have that same connector. Yeah. The, the only thing that I see as kind of a, a danger is because the Mac uses USB-C and Thunderbolt 3 over that Type-C connector, that you're going to end up in a situation where people have Thunderbolt 3 devices and the Thunderbolt 3 cable is expensive, and so they buy the cheaper USB-C cable that looks identical. 
mm-hmm. but is not. Yeah. And and so there's still a little bit of a rough uh, rough patch ahead. Of, yeah. But give it a couple of years, and most of the pain will smooth over. Yeah. Yeah. And our current workflow, it, it's kind of untenable because we do a lot of video editing and audio recording on with you know mini micro SDs and. It's easy to just slide it in there, and all of our audio interfaces use USB or Thunderbolt, so it would uh, cause a hiccup. <laughs> Today they do. Yeah, I, yeah I, I imagine, you know, we, we talk about, <clears throat> we're talking about building a, a hardware device, um, and, you know, fun, we're imagining that in a year or two years, USB-C is the way to go, so we're already, like, designing for that. Um, I, you know, it, it, uh, it, the transition is a little painful, and I guess when you're stressed and we're trying to get that new software build out there, you're, just kind of, you're not not really in the in the mood to to test out a new uh, new environment. I guess I understand you. <laughs> well, this is very cool, and we're going to put in a, a couple of samples of what this sounds like here in the podcast, Great. so that our listeners can understand what it is you're actually making. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, I am so glad you were here to speak with us. Great, thanks for having me. Welcome to another segment of the Apple Insider Podcast, and I'm here with Jason Salzman, who is from Universal Audio. Hello, people. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about Universal Audio and, and what you make. Yeah, so um, to tell you about Universal Audio now, I'm going to go back in time. Uh, the company actually was founded in 1958, so it's, it's a venerable company, and in the audio industry, it's actually one of the oldest companies. Um, Bill Putnam Sr. was the founder of the company, and he was a recording engineer of the day. He was one of Frank Sinatra's favorite engineers to use, but he was also a tinkerer and designer. 
So at that time, he was saying, I wish this existed. Well, I guess he had the ability to go ahead and, and conceptualize, design, and build it. So one of the first recording consoles ever made was built by the 610 console. Really, he and Les Paul are credited for modern recording as we know it. So um, through his lifetime, there were three companies, Universal Auto being one of them, and, and also working as a studio designer and as a recording engineer. So that's the history of the company. And if you fast forward to 1999, uh, his sons decided to resurrect the company to really do two things, build the analog gear the way it was made back in the day, uh, and then research and design products that people wanted today. And the first thing that came up was plugins. Can you guys develop plugins um, that basically capture the essence of what analog gear does? So Bill Putnam Jr. had studied physical modeling at Stanford, wanted to take what he had learned there and apply it to the things he loved, compressors, EQs, mic pre's, uh, and take, can we actually, you know, take this LA-2A compressor this tube opto compressor and basically build it virtually using um, digital modeling, component-based modeling. And that was really the impetus for the company that we know today. So I guess fast forward to the, the second answer to that question, and what do we make today? We, we still make the analog gear the way it was made back in the day. Most of it's made in Scotts Valley, California, uh, which is right next to Santa Cruz, about an hour south of San Francisco. Um, so there's that one component. And then the next of the plugins, uh, usually under the moniker of UAD, uh, the other products that we make are the Apollo lineup, which is our audio interfaces. And that came about in 2012. So in about four, four or five years, it's become one of the leading audio interfaces. And what's great for me, I, I'm a musician and engineer as well and been a UA customer for, for over a decade. Uh, is just seeing how our products have really helped people make music and change the way they make music and give the option of, of having pro results without having to spend an exorbitant amount of money, which is what you used to have to be able to do to invest. And so I guess that would be the company's past, their sort of, uh, and sort of where we are today. And what, what kind of musicians are, are using the gear is it all all sorts all genres all it's, it's it's everyone it's all over the place uh i've met classical recordists who are using universal audio products uh you know hip-hop records being made on the road using apollos uh the where we're mugfest today the, the good chunk of the attendees thus far are hardcore synthesis having which I've met a bunch and they, they're they using Apollos or UAD products or, or hardware. So it kind of runs the gamut. Um, if we think about tools, let's say a hammer, mm -hmm. right? That hammer might go in the hands of a carpenter. It might go in the hand of a plumber. It might go in, it's, it's the tool that that uh, handyman or handywoman, or in this case, engineer, producer, mixer, uh, musician, is going to take and use and kind of manipulate for their own needs. So here at the show, you're, you're using the, you're demonstrating the Apollo, is that right? Yes. And you've got synthesizers connected to the Apollo that are right. then connected to a Macintosh. Yes. Is that right? Yes, yes both myself and uh, Vic Stafford, my, my co-worker at this event, are both using Mac laptops. So um, I, I should ask, how, how is that all connected and what's the software and sure. what, is, what is having it connected to a Mac? 
allow your user to do? Um, so the the connectivity is Thunderbolt. That's what we're using for all of our Mac products. Um, uh, let's see. Let's see if I can answer the question. So the connectivity is Thunderbolt. What are we using? We're using a combination of Apollo's, um, the, the Apollo Rack series, the Apollo 8 uh, Quad and AP, for all you folks who need to know, uh, are there our rack mounts, and then Apollo Twins. And the benefit of our system, the Apollo system, so you can have up to four Apollos connected via Thunderbolt, daisy chaining. And it's really simple. There's a thing called star clocking, meaning every unit thinks it's first in line, so you're not getting some of the historically digital jitter that comes with connecting a multiple digital units. So um, so it's a real uniquity to us that yeah, you can have that many units connected and build a system. You know, There are other companies that do that, but to do it so easily via Thunderbolt, using our console software that's included with every Apollo allows you to take all those inputs and outputs and add them up uh, and, and kind of choose the order or manipulate the, the names of them so they show up, you can customize it. And that's where also our plugins are hosted um, for tracking. So being able to record through our plugins with near zero latency. Our measured latency is uh, 1.1 milliseconds at 96K sample rate. So, um, so uh, I just want to clarify something I said there. Our plugins also work in DAWs, pretty much every DAW that would host AU, audio units, which is Logic or, or Ableton. Uh, VST, RTAS, and AAX. So um, UA plugins will live in in those worlds, but also in this proprietary software called Console. Now, I think I saw, and correct me because I, I might not have understood, I, I saw a synthesizer, mm -hmm. and then I saw a, an application that might have been Console, and it looked as if it was possible to adjust the filter after the fact of, of getting the sound into the computer. Yeah, so you might have been seeing uh, two things I think you saw. Yeah, you definitely saw a synthesizer. Uh, what we're using is a Moog, I believe it's a sub fatty. That's the keyboard you actually saw. And we have two Mother 32 um, modules from, from Moog. Uh, and so we're using that for a couple of reasons. One, and the gear just sounds amazing. Moog makes some amazing products. But two, we're kind of hot, not kind of, we're highlighting the fact that with an Apollo, um, whether it's rack mount or twin, there's something called control voltage. Um, so to get technical for a second, uh, the outputs on an Apollo are DC coupled, meaning you can send control voltage out the outputs. And that's um, what those, like the Mother 32 is wanting to see. So through using a, a program that I think is what you, the program you saw, I think it's, it's called Expert Sleepers. My silent way, it allows you to take MIDI in, let's say, a DAW like Logic or Ableton or Pro Tools, but taking MIDI, that information in there, and converting it from MIDI to control voltage and then going out of the Apollo into that Mod32 to trigger it. So if I hit play on, let's say, a MIDI uh, track inside of Logic, let's say, it will actually trigger the Mother 32. So it's something that um, we feel is really important for this customer especially to know about. And, you know, to, uh, the feedback's been, you know, just astounding. Folks saying, I had no idea that was available. <laughs> so 
it's been really great to see some light bulbs go off and guys get and gals get more excited about the gear that they already own or that they're considering getting and how it's helping them again to your question to make music you know to make music make the music they want to express themselves uh, i also think that i saw a demonstration of autotune oh yeah yeah <laughs> and that was also using the apollo twin i think is, is that right i think well so like i said in the console all the inputs on an Apollo. In this case, I'm, uh, on my side, I'm using an Apollo 8P and a, a twin Apollo Twin Mark II Quad. All those inputs add up into the console. So it could have been the twin, it could have been the rack mount, but yes, you saw Auto-Tune, which actually was just released uh, two days ago. So in a partnership with Antares, we, uh, we have Auto-Tune Live on our platform, which is great. And because, to get a little technical, all Apollos have DSP. Since the beginning, um, Universal Audio plugins have been run off of DSP, external DSP, and now we're into UAD2 and using shark chips. All Apollos have those shark chips on board in their units, so we're able to use plugins, our plugins, uh, in real time or close to near zero latency on the front end for tracking, which is a uniquity. Uh, no. Again, you know, there's been other other companies that have done that, but to make it so accessible, I mean, an Apollo Twin Solo starts at street price at $699. So to be able to track with near-zero latency using plugins in real time, like Auto-Tune, or the fact that we've modeled these different mic pre's that interact with the hardware on an Apollo, so it's changing the gain staging and impedance of the physical mic pre to match the software mic pre. Those are all things that are game changers for people to be able to, again, create and not be hindered by technology, you know, and not say, wow, I have to deal with the latency. In this case, it's indiscernible at under two milliseconds. That's really a huge leap forward. You know, I, I've uh, used other audio interfaces that, e even ones that have their own DSPs, and latency can be such an issue. You know, I, I've, I've, had auto interfaces as far back as I was using a 1998 a Lexicon product. Oh wow, sure. And yeah. uh, a lot less options back then. <laughs> a lot less options back then, and and latency was something that we were all trying to figure out how we could minimize. And it was it was uh, such a difficult thing because when you're trying to to track and trying to to uh, you know keep things in sync and and hearing that it's, it's not so bad when you're doing with recordings after the fact kind of thing but when you're trying to do things live and there's that that delay it's it's uncanny once you know it, it, even if it's you know 20 milliseconds or 40 milliseconds it kills you very disconcerting yeah because i mean as a as a musician or uh you know vocalist drummer something with transients fast transients when you're used to, let's say in the case of a guitar, hitting that string and getting this immediacy, um, and then you're basically in a studio environment where you hit the string and there's a delay and you could feel that, um, what, what is it going to do? Depending on the length of the delay, you might get used to that. You might just say, okay, I can make it work because of the trade-off. But ultimately, it's going to, in my opinion, affect the performance because you're not in that comfort zone of being used to, wow, I hit the, hit the note and it's this immediacy and this, this sort of, uh, um, affecting the performance. In this case, if you, when you have that latency that becomes, um, significant, it's, it's a drag. Absolutely. So what, what should I have asked that I haven't asked? What, what have I missed that you'd like our listeners to know? 
Ooh, um, that's a good question. Um, you know, technology-wise, obviously being in Northern California and being very close to Apple, I know that there's uh, there's interaction between the companies. Again, my role, I should say, my role is national sales and product training manager. So I'm more focused on, I guess, the channel in terms of interacting with customers and, and working with the guys that are, that are report to me and sort of making sure that they're on message and going out and, and, and training our, our partners. And so I'm not as involved with the technology side and the development side. Um, uh, the thing I would just say about the company and one of the things that attracted me to come work here, and I've worked for other companies in this industry for almost 20 years now, is a, a level of commitment to delivering great products um, that help people. I mean, that comes from Bill Down, our CEO. You know, this, 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 uh, uh, yeah, on my shirt, I think it says, well, my other shirt that I, <laughs> I'm wearing tomorrow. Craftsmanship is the word that I think Bill always harks on and, and in the right way that we want to make great products that really help people make the music that they, they have in their head and, you know, in for professionals that they're counting on to make a living. So, uh, to me, that's that's a huge part of the message and something why I'm really attracted to to this company in terms of wanting to go work for it because it's it's a value that I really um, uh, admire and adhere to. So, anyway, that's my take on why <laughs> UA is great and it's awesome, but it's a lovely company with a lot of talented folks. Well, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jason Salzman from Universal Audio. We're back with another segment of the Apple Insider podcast. I'm Victor, and with me is Mark from Audulous. Hello. So, Mark, I was I was over at the sort of stand in Power Plant building today where you were showing off, uh, you had software on a Mac, you had software running on an iPad Pro, mm -hmm. and it looked like that was sort of an illustration of a modular synth that you could zoom in on using pinch zoom and and make changes with touch. So tell me a little bit more about what it is y'all are doing. So our app is called Audulous, and uh, I work for uh, it. And Taylor, uh, who can't join us uh, at the moment, but he is the creator. He's also here um, of Audulous. So Audulous is a modular synthesizer programming environment for Mac, Windows, Linux, and iOS. And iOS means it's also for iPhone as well. So even though we didn't have one out uh, today, you could definitely load up on your phone works exactly the same from version to version. The only difference really is uh, in the UI and the way that you navigate touch versus computer. Um, but what it allows you to do is, it, I, I liken it to digital DIY electronics. Uh, it's a way to an explore an idea and, and do a kind of node-based programming but without having to know a whole lot about programming uh, to begin with. I really, I'm really clueless when it comes to programming and Taylor is really the one who, you know, he codes it up in C++ and you know writes it from the ground up, and uh, I just use the program itself to make um, modules, like you were mentioning, the Eurex style uh, modules. Part of the, um, the the appeal, the thing that we wanted to get people into is that you know you can use Audulous as not a Eurex substitute, but something that uh, actually integrates with your Eurex. And one of the exhibits we have here today is. Uh, a, a, a synthesizer patch that I made with uh, a switchable filter, so you can go from d three digital digital filters to uh, three other analog filters that are out in my little Eurorack using this Expert Sleepers uh, ES8 silent uh, uh, DC coupled audio interface. 
and you can use it like as a tool as for gating it's really just a, you know exploratory like playground you can make your own wild effects and, and you know you can't see this it's on a podcast but uh it's got a beautiful ui as well so yeah the the ui on the ipad pro looked really well done mm -hmm. yeah it was uh it was it was touchable it was beautiful mm -hmm. and uh it, it it looked like this this sort of weird i, I want to say transition between analog mm -hmm. and the physical and the the electronic and the the digital without being scoiomorphic right yeah. it was it was they 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 looked like euro racks but they were line drawings so that it wasn't something that had to be a brushed metallic texture right it yeah, wasn't exactly. brushed aluminum yeah, yeah. it was it was a line drawing showing you what mm -hmm. the what the gates were like and definitely like yeah and and what's cool too is that you know you on every input and output they're labeled and you have the lights and it's blinky blinkies it's everywhere you know uh they, there's a lot of fun stuff you can do with the um little visual elements that you can add that really you know take you know a, a just a normal effect patch and make it a little more special uh, when you're using it you can make it definitely make it your own and everyone really all the the users that I see have modules kind of have their own style of um, design. The way that they lay their modules out, um, you can kind of put your own little mark on it. Even though you know you're not you're not loading um, some other like a, a, a scalable vector graphic uh, version that you do with some other programs. Uh, you you just it's very simple and no nonsense. It makes it really easy to read um, the uh, modules from module to module, but. At the same time, there's still flexibility with <clears throat> creating uh, something that's you know uniquely your own. Do you have to have a Euro rack connected to it? Some, do you have to have Absolutely a DC not. coupled interface? No, no. no. The, what, what that's doing is uh, there's a synthesizer that's created in Audulous, and there's there are these little loops that go in and out of Audulous, and so one of the loops is uh, a loop to the uh, to VCA, and it's not acting like a VCA, it's just being used as, as a distortion. So what you can do is you can dial in the distortion really gnarly uh, and get the tone you want, and then you can back it off until, you know, something that was just like a, a howl becomes a kind of reedy element uh, in the uh, the patch. So it sees the audio going, the, the it sends audio out to um, the VCA, and then it has this dry path and they're recombined and, and mixed back together. Uh, and then they go on further to the filter section where uh, you can either choose to go into one of the Audulous digital filters, or you can go out of the ES8 yet again and then go through a filter loop and come back in. And the ES8 has such low latency that you don't even notice. It's you know hundreds of a millisecond, so it's great. So who, who uses Audulous. Um, I think there's I, the sense that I get from people is that everyone uh, uses Audulous for all sorts of reasons. Like a lot of people simply love the creative aspect of it, of making their own modules. There are a lot of people who don't ever make their own stuff, and they just use the other modules that people build, and and that's cool too. Like you don't have to build everything from the ground up every time. And uh, this synthesizer that I'm premiering in Moogfest is an all-in-one kind of uh, composer uh, uh, thing that can, it, um, you know, you can you can basically write a whole song in it, and it's it's basically one module, one box by itself, uh, self-contained synth. So, uh, you know, 
the, the other type of person that I'm trying to get into Audulous is uh, people who are into um, doing electronics design because basically Audulous is like uh, working with block diagrams where you can see the flow of ideas and there's a another company I work for called Endangered Audio Research and we recently used Audulous to prototype one of the features that are going to make it onto the new delay pedal that we're that we're doing. Excuse me. Okay, so so you've prototyped in Audulous and mm -hmm. shown that how it's going to work and how it's going to sound in Audulous. You can you can actually make a delay pedal in yeah. Audulous. Oh yeah. And that delay pedal is going to become a real effects pedal. Yeah, it's 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 an aspect of the pedal. So I didn't bother modeling the way that the delay sounds, but there's a, a feature I can't I can't discuss it. Yeah. NDA whatever. Unreleased product. We don't discuss <laughs> yes. unreleased product. But but it is a very cool little uh, trick that you know when we, it, it, when you when you're able to actually hear it rather than having to go through the hours that it takes to breadboard it before you even get to the point of hearing it, uh, it's cool to be able to just do it real quick. I mean, it took literally ten minutes doing it, and most of that was just fine tuning the you know few details here and there. So. Generally, though, the sketching, sketching out, it becomes very quick and easy. A lot of people, they look at Audulous, they see its depth, they feel intimidated. Uh, and I get that. But at the same time, it's not like, you know, the ocean is deep, but you can also walk out into it. It's not like you have to get dropped into it. You, you, you can walk until you learn to swim, and then you can just go out on your own. So that's kind of how I feel about Audulous. There's lots of tutorials. It's, it's a really great way to just learn synthesis in general. It's, it's an awesome way to start. It's especially great for people who uh, are thinking about getting into your act but like don't know what modules to buy. It's a great way to educate yourself about modular synthesis before you go buying those two, three hundred dollar modules and you know realizing you don't like it and having to sell it and do something else. So it, you know, I, I tell people use Audulous and figure out what kind of modular synthesis you like and to do and like what how you want to use a modular synth and then you can use that to inform buying actual modules as well. You know, but it's it's also I mean it's it's of course an instrument by itself, and I've written plenty of music with just it, and it's super versatile. And I love it. You know, it's I, I'm 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 the biggest fan of it, and definitely have used it more than anyone. Uh, and and it's not it's not something I feel like I have to force myself to do to sit down and create something. It's really really wonderful. When you sit down to to start working with it, are you using uh, what 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 which do you grab? Do you start with your iPhone? Do you start with... Uh... Always the computer. Uh, I, I feel, me personally, I enjoy the iOS uh, version for, uh, for, for performance and for um, the touchability aspect of it. But uh, the computer is, for me, quicker. You, you have access to shortcuts uh, that you don't have on the iPad. Uh, really quickly, copy and pasting things, especially when you're making a large field of buttons or something like that. It's easy to do that really quickly on a computer um, but it, it performs well in uh, you know both both cases it's really the computer can handle a little higher level patches so you use the iPad for performance and you use the Mac when you're working and, and composing in it because you have the access to the keyboard shortcuts yeah. and it's nice to record uh, straight into Ableton too I mean I like the um, uh, the plug-in version of Audio so I can load up a, I can make a synth in the standalone and then load it up and then do all my sequencing and Ableton, if I want. You know, more and more these days, though, I'm just pretty much just using Ableton to record the output of Audulous, uh, 
from the standalone and I try to I try to make stuff all within Audulous without having to like go outside of it it's, it's really that powerful and, and fun it's not just you know a little effect app like it really is you know deep so, so you, you mentioned that people should use Audulous if they're thinking about getting into Euro, Euro racks mm -hmm. yeah. how, how expensive are Euro racks for our listeners who don't know well the average module is between 100 and 300 dollars with most of like the cheapest utilities are maybe 50 dollars to 80 and those are really small and don't do much um you know if you're looking at like a, a simple subtractive synthesis voice so an oscillator a vca a vcf um an uh, envelope uh output uh possibly an effect you know that'll run you like at least a thousand dollars most of the time I mean, you got those on one dealies like uh, the mo 32 the mother 32 uh that is maybe 600 bucks for a whole synth you know in one package but then you know it's sort of like part of the whole modular thing is you you, you get this oscillator here and that you know from another company and you build like a franken system it's it's nice you, you get to have uh you know your choice of the sounds but you know it's a very very expensive habit to get into and one that will consume your life if you i mean really it really a lot of people um you know you, there's Moogfest, of course which uh, you know draws all sorts of people but um uh knobcon is very specific to modular synthesizer people and it is it's really fun in that like you get to be all around all these people but you can tell that there's you know it's it 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 it, it's it's like any kind of like convention, um, the fanboy kind of thing. There, there's a whole thing about modular synthesizers with that too, which is well, they named great. it Knobcon, so that yeah, tells know, you something yeah. to begin with, right? Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's great. Yeah, yeah. It started by some of the makers. Uh, uh, it's really cool. But, so, how how much is Audulous? Audulous for iOS right now is twenty dollars, uh, nineteen ninety nine in the uh, iTunes Store and uh, sorry, the App Store, and then the Mac version and Mac Windows Linux version is $40 and the Mac version is available on in the Mac store and the uh, Windows Linux version is available on uh, our website and you if you buy the iOS version you can put it on your iPhone and your iPad so like it, you, you don't need to buy a separate license to it, put it, it travels with you across yeah. your iOS mm -hmm. devices definitely cool um, I, I should ask, are there in-app purchases? Do you have in-app purchases no. for each different module? We, we or? used to, um, oh, heavens no. There's there's something like 300 collected user modules that are from the forum that are in like a little folder that we still have to figure out how to get into the um, in, into the app itself. But there's also 100 or 50 so included modules that are, that are in the app. The in-app purchases that we had in Audulous 2 people didn't like it you know you kind of feel nickel and dimed and it really just held everyone back because we, we want everyone to have all all of the tools right from the start uh so that they're they don't they don't feel limited and they don't feel like oh do i really need this feature or that feature um uh and they're able to open up other uh, people's patches and play around with them and and learn from them so uh, that was something that we got rid of in, in Audulous 3. There's been a lot a lot of updates, a lot of modules, uh, feature updates. Like one of the features that we're premiering uh, here is that we expanded our audio outputs to um, uh, 16 or more because, you know, before we were limited to just stereo in, stereo out. So when we were using 
the expert sleepers ES8, I was only able to use the top two um, inputs and outputs. But now we can use the whole thing and really, you know, bring out its full potential. And then next on the docket is the MIDI, MIDI out. We currently have MIDI in, but no MIDI out. But uh, you'll be able to um, uh, make MIDI effects, arpeggiators, that kind of thing, mangle your MIDI through Audulus and then send it out onto your, you know, analog synths from the olden days and that kind of stuff. But uh, that's going to be the last big update for three. And then Audulus 4 is going to come out um, maybe in six months to a year. It's, it depends on how uh, long it takes to develop. But, you know, the point is that the the updates really come from the modules and people sharing them and making their own and, and feeding back. Like, we, we just got a bunch of uh, analog modeling filters uh, that people made, uh, and they sound really great and share them on the forum. Those will make their way into the library eventually. But every, every little thing that people share, like, just grows the program uh, so much more. So that's why I really encourage people to go to the forum. It's uh, forum.audulus.com. And lots of people share patches and discuss stuff, like help each other. Like, it, you know, they want help building something. And, you know, this guy will find the scientific article. And the other guy is the one who actually, you know, translates it and, you know, actually makes it into an Audulus patch. It's, it's, it's a great community. I love, I love checking it. I always get excited when I see new posts on it. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, where should we go to hear music created with Audulus? Um, well, there's the Audulus YouTube channel, uh, and that's got a bunch of uh, different videos, different tutorials. Uh, you can hear Audulus, and there's also playlists that I make um, that people, you know, other people's Audulus videos. Uh, there's, th but also just sprinkled around the forum, a lot of people, when they make a patch, they'll make a little sound sample along with it too. It's cool. You, you can definitely uh, get some great sounds out of it. Very cool. I, I just, I can't get over how cool it was seeing Audulus on the iPad Pro. It, it, it really seems to me like it's it's got to be so liberating to be able to just touch and and manipulate music without having to, to get into serious wires and pliers and yeah. that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it really kind of democratizes it in a way that line by line coding is just, I, I have a difficult time understanding it. I, I still do. Um, the, the node based system where you have a number in and then you have something that does something to that number and then it gets spit out the other end. It's so visually explicit and it's uh, really easy to catch into. Very cool. Well, I, I should ask is this your first Moogfest? Uh, no, we were here last year. Yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Has it been a good show for you guys? Love it. Yeah. I, I love this this new arrangement where, you know, people can't see here, but we switched rooms with the uh, the Moog people and, and they have the longer hallway and now it's it's more open and there's uh it's it's it seems like we're getting more and more traffic, people stopping by, uh, people talking for longer. It's it's great. I, I always like these places to you know, I, I end up losing my voice by the end of the day from talking literally from the time I get here to the time I leave at, you know, right as someone's leaving there's another person's like come on like give me the, the scoop on audulus it's it's a very uh visually arresting uh program uh, to see and so it's it's definitely gets its you know, crowd to uh, come by and check it out very cool well mark thank you so much for, for spending the time with us and we're going to check out audulus excellent